I have my bookmark is the um, return sticker from the box that the book came in. <laughs> Just in case you get so angry, you can send it back. <laughs> I have scribbled all over this thing. This is Bread and Barricades, the lamest podcast. Uh, this is me, Nemo, your host. I use they, them pronouns. And today I went to a online conference about audio describing theatre which my supervisor was helping to run, which is really interesting. And uh, uh, I guess a plug <laughs> if you are in theatre or if you make theatre or if you do anything about theatre um, or museums or basically anything that needs audio describing, which I guess is quite a lot of things. Um, I would recommend Googling Describing Diversity uh, by Visualize, who just released a report on... Uh, better practices for describing people on stage and describing shows on stage. Um, and it was really interesting. Yeah, it was about like people of colour, um, about women, uh, and about how audio description, obviously, because it's a product of our society, has often been very white focused and very male dominated. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was good to see progress uh, yeah. and making it cool and accessible for loads of people. So, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I'm Stevie, she, her pronouns, your various researcher these days. Um, God, <laughs> one was so good, and I was like, here's what I had prepared. It's been like, how long, how many years have you been doing this podcast? Like three years? Yeah. This is the first time I'm recording in my jammies. Oh my God, really? Because <laughs> so I was like, is it? Like, this. Yeah, this is the first time I'm recording my jammy, so this is a little sleepover episode for me. That's how? Well, we've been doing it through lockdown. How have you not just been in your jammy? <laughs> if there's, like, only one thing I'm good at, it's, like, getting dressed in the morning no matter what. Okay. Which, like, wasn't me at uni. At uni, there was people who only knew me with my greasy hair slicked up into a bun and in a fox onesie. <laughs> like, they didn't recognise me when they saw me, like dress on the street <laughs> so I think maybe it was that shame that I, yeah like I've turned that around and I just get dressed that is very adult of you and very responsible <laughs> of you I'm in admiration I am in my pajamas but I'm almost always in my pajamas yeah. when recording <laughs> like kind of was going on the assumption that I was like this will be sleepover <laughs> working from home there's no way they're dressed <laughs> no I, I went to work today I was at the museum oh. I was actually today was the first time I wore jeans since oh, uh, would you? May oh god it was rough <laughs> I just I've been wearing my like, yeah. Today my other comfortable trousers were in the wash, so <laughs> <laughs> I had to do that. That was yeah, sitting in a chair for eight hours. I was like, oh. I really want to undo my top button, but <laughs> I can't. But <laughs> I mean, now for... my team... sorry, <laughs> you were about to go to a good segue, and I was like, <laughs> no, but more oh, about jeans. It wasn't going to be a good one. I was just going to say, like, speaking of sleepovers, and then I was going to look down at the page and just hope that something <laughs> came to me. Speaking of sleepovers... Men must have wine, and horses must have water, and this podcast must wear jammies. <laughs>
And that's a real title that Victor Hugo wrote, that whole thing, especially the jammy part. <laughs> um, it's such like we've been so trained by Victor Hugo to, at this point that you see any mention of like an unnamed man and you're like, Jean Valjean? <laughs> like, four travelers have turned up and I'm like, Jean Valjean, four times? Um, it's John, 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 and John Valjean. John with all of his little, was it his little nephews? Or they all had the same name in that family, didn't they? It could be. Yeah, his dad and his mom and his sister. And I don't think his the nephews and nieces were named, but yeah, everyone else was John. Oh, it could have been the family reunion. And he doesn't say <laughs> otherwise, so let's pretend. <laughs> so we left off with some sad. Cosette with the Thenardier in, and that is where we're picking back up. She was sadly pensive. That yeah, we open with that she had a bruised eyelid from being hit by the Thenardier wife, which I'm assuming we talked about last episode. That like when we saw the Lamers production in theatre, no, mm. that she didn't have the she didn't have the black eye makeup, but she has in some. Yeah, sometimes uh, people have seen it. Yeah, and then Nemo actually just sent me a Tumblr post that I will try and remember to put on the podcast Tumblr. Um, <laughs> it was actually more about um, Asian Cosette, but that quite a few of them had the eyebrows makeup. Yeah, so Gigi Von Damme, um, they do really good posts, which are basically collections of uh, people of colour as a certain character or in a certain show. Um, I think they do like, yeah, they, they uh, tag it by show and stuff like that. So it was really useful when I was trying to find instance of um, actors who have played uh, the roles in Les Mis and how often a role gets cast in a certain way. Eponine is most commonly black out of all of the other characters. I wonder why. Mm. <laughs> um, and then it's Jean Valjean and then... Javert and then Fontaine and then Cosette. I think Cosette's only Cosette's only had one performer play her as a main cast and not as a understudy. So that's fun. Oh, the one that we saw? Yeah. She's the ah. first and only principal black Cosette um in an English language production. Mm. Okay. Um even in the Dallas Lemis, which was majority uh, black cast, and the director was a black <laughs> female pro- director, and even then they made Cosette an Asian woman instead of a black person. So oh. that was interesting. Yeah. Really but yeah, um, I guess it does talk about privilege, and and the director is a South African black woman who, I guess, there is the thing of um, yeah, apartheid in the apartheid. Um, Asian people were given honorary white status against black people and I guess it's an interesting thing Mm. to see an Asian Cosette and the privilege that she holds over the black cast yeah no I just I do find that interesting and that yeah um, how many times he really does go out of his way to be like she's literally beaten and you can physically see that and that it's not always a thing made clear at least on the stage and I don't think you I can't remember seeing her bruised even in the movie um no so it always kind of stands out for that reason because I saw the film before 
reaching these uh, descriptions. Yeah, well, I mean, what kind of person do you have to be to be reading this book and to be like, yes, child abuse, yes, it's really bad, yeah, Cosette, a seven-year-old, beaten up by these people. Anyway, here's the comedy song that's going to be the backbone of our show. (laughs) Yeah, fuck. Yeah, because this whole, this chapter um, is is basically her sort of quaking in fear, knowing she's going to be sent to go fetch some water. As Victor Hugo says, as I've mentioned before and must not be forgotten, (laughs) where you get the water is so very far away, and if that man who does it between the hours of I can't quite remember, but you know, after dark, he's not willing to do it, you've got to get your own water. So she's huddled under the table, like, for the love of God, no one asks for any more water. But there's these four travellers, um, the guy that one's like, hey, my horse has not been watered. Um, and Cosette literally springs out and is like, no, 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 like, I, I, Gave your horse water. The horse drank it. Drank a whole bucket full. Um, this was not true. Cosette was lying. Um, that she really persists in this of being like, no, no, I like, I swear to God, I have watered your horse because just the fear of having to go out and fetch this water. Um, she would rather lie than have to go do that. Um, but eventually, is told by the Tenardier woman, go fetch some fucking water, and then gives Cosette a. a uh, is it a sou? Some small... Uh, sorry. Yeah, a 15-sou piece to pick up a loaf of bread from the bakers while she's out there. Cosette stands with this bucket that's almost as big as her, uh, waiting for someone to come rescue her, and then gets shouted at by the Tenardier woman, um, and she has to leave. But... I like how the water bucket guy is like, nah, I'm not going out anymore. But the baker's like, yeah, dude, still got bread. Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I thought bakers were supposed to be like early risers and then yeah. they go to bed. <laughs> but yeah, she's assuming that there's bread to be bought. I guess if you've got the corner on the water fetching market, you can do whatever, the, whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so our next chapter, A Doll make it, Makes Its Appearance, uh, is quite a short one that it's, there is a little shop in Montfermeil that has, like, the most beautiful doll that's also, like, almost as large as Cosette, that's in pride of place, uh, it's wearing, like, a pink crepe dress and a golden tiara, um, she has real hair and enamel eyes, um, no one in town is extravagant enough to buy this for their children, but every child who likes dolls is like in awe of it. That even Cosette, who is so full of fear for the for the Tenardia woman, can't help but stop to like gawk up at this doll. Mm. And like with the sad and naive wisdom of childhood, Cosette measured the abyss that separated her from that doll. Like from the finery that is this doll and the life she imagines this doll having it's really fucking sad chapter that's really sad and also like i um like i hadn't paid attention to the fact that the doll has real hair and it's like hmm uh, it's probably not fontaine's hair but fontaine's hair is like the smoking gun for us (laughs) has been mentioned it (laughs) cannot be any other hair 
<laughs> like it probably like it probably isn't because Hugo would be like cough cough guess whose hair that is like mm. and be like it was the most beautiful startling brown hair that anyone had ever seen and you know sorry blonde hair Fontina's blonde um it, but it's still like um somebody had to have sold their hair for that doll to have it yeah and even if it wasn't Fontine it's still like yeah it's interesting it really it's even in things as like um innocent as a doll now that we have like one character who has had to sell their hair in order to get like basic things for their child um but rich people can buy a doll that has human hair on it like capitalism (laughs) (laughs) yeah and if it was like anyone who wasn't hugo we probably could be like ah that's definitely implying that it's Fontaine's hair. But as you say, he would be like <laughs> elbowing us in the ribs, like, look at this hair. <laughs> oh, but let's choose to believe it is, because it's still really sad. But then if she gets this doll, we can feel like she has a piece of Fontaine with her. Yeah, looking over her and like protecting her. Oh, speaking of Fontaine looking over Cosette. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but before we can get to that, um, yeah, the, uh, the guy who made the doll, or the trader, the man who owns the shop that this beautiful doll is in, <laughs> is, like, pacing around in there, and to her, he seemed like the eternal father, and all the dolls in the shop are the little angels, and then you've just got this little urchin cassette staring at it all, knowing that that's not her life, she's like, how happy that doll must be, and then, yeah, Tenardier's wife sees that she's loitering and is like, get on or I'm going to come smack you. So it flees with her pail, moving as fast as she could. Into the next sad chapter, <laughs> the little girl all alone. So this one's a fairly long one. And it's just Cosette's journey through the town, like passing the stalls. And she really struggles to walk past the final stall because she's like, oh, I'm getting closer to the dark uh, woods that I'm going to have to go fetch this water from. It's already really dark at night. There's only... Ooh! Are we keeping note of when stars come up? Yes, let's... Yeah. (laughs) There was only, like, two or three stars in the sky. It's a really dark night. Mm. And her fear's mounting. She's, like, rattling her little handle. So that the sound of it keeps her company as she's walking. Um, she passes one woman on the street who is like, where is that child going? Is it a werewolf child? And I'm like, oh no, it's just Cosette. <laughs> um, so I would like some werewolf AU Cosette. Not enough monster Cosette, I think. Not in this fandom. Not enough for me. These chapters, it's, her journey is described so much in the way that it would feel to be Cosette in this moment. Like, every, it's the labyrinth of torturous and mm. deserted streets. Like, everything is something to be afraid of. Everything is described in this very, like, looming over her with claws, like, wanting to get her. And she's trying to go as, fa- as quick as she can, but then she gets to the last house of the town before the forest. And it's even harder than when she was at the last stall in the market because she's no this is like the last landmark and she's gonna have to go be alone in this dark forest and then finally uh 
The fear made her daring. Puh, she said, I'll tell her. There was no water left. And she starts going back to, to Montfermeil. But the spectre of Mrs. Tenardier is more frightening than the ghosts she imagines being around her in this forest. And she turns back around and is like, actually, that is worse than me going into this forest that has been described how terrifying it is to her in so much detail, but still going back to Mrs. Tenardier without the water is the worst op- worst option for her. Mm. It's not a long walk to where the spring is, but she's this tiny child with this bucket that's bigger <laughs> than her. Um, she finally gets to it, and the fear and her turmoil gave her strength that was three times normal. She manages to dunk this whole bucket in the water, lifts it up and the uh what is the name of that thing is it schrodinger's gun no uh, schrodinger's uh, gun. Chekhov's. <laughs> <laughs> chekhov's gun or schrodinger's cat which one do you mean it's chekhov's gun <laughs> <laughs> schrodinger's gun <laughs> is the gun even real if i'm not shooting it <laughs> Chekhov's cat, which you mentioned at the beginning and save at the end, which is a, a deeper cut for the book, uh, Save the Cat. Well, Victor Hugo's Chekhov's 15 sous piece. <laughs> She's leaning over to dump, dunk this bucket and it falls out of her, out of her uh, little pinafore pocket. But she's like rattling and so full of fear. She doesn't hear that it fall, doesn't see it. She's just like, okay, I've done, I've done my job. And you're like, no, the Sue. And she's so drained by exhaustion at this point from how heavy this thing is and by her fear that she has to pause, even though she absolutely does not want to stay in this forest longer than she needs to. And she's looking around and it's so dark and Jupiter is setting in the heavens. <laughs> and this it's this huge star that's terrified her. It's glinting through a thick layer of mist that gave it a horrible ruddiness. The gruesomely crimson-tinged mist magnified the star. It was like a luminous wound. Like, luminous like the wound on her eye! (laughs) (laughs) At least that was where I was at. But also, Jupiter's a star, so put it on the list. (laughs) It literally made me think of... um... Uh, what we were saying about how Jupiter is in retrograde, is in, yeah, retrograde right now or something, <laughs> some shit. It's like, yeah, blame it on Jupiter. I have uh, no idea what the fuck that means, but <laughs> bad things are ha- like it. Yeah, if it's low, maybe it's in. But can you see if it's in retrograde? We actually don't know anything about <laughs> what it means to be in retrograde, but we are willing to blame things on it. And she's having a bad day, and Jupiter's there. <laughs> yeah. We really are the people who are like, yeah, Victor Hugo doesn't know shit. <laughs> anyway, Jupiter's in retrograde, so obviously that means that Cosette's suffering. <laughs> like, we don't pretend to know, unlike Victor Hugo, that's the difference. That's true. We're dumb as shit and we know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually does some very top-notch descriptive work in this chapter. Like, he's really good at describing terrifying scenes for children. That that could have been the title of this book. (laughs) Terrifying scenes for children, yeah. Because she's, like, stood there terrified of Jupiter, 
Um, and around her, like, the stunted, gnarled bushes whistled, whistled in the clearing. The tall grasses were, like, wriggling, wriggling masses of eels beneath the icy blast. Brambles writhed with what looked like long arms equipped with claws attempting to catch prey. There's, like, quite a lot of those, and it's very evocative language. Like, whenever he does a good job, I, like, make a little note where I'm like, ooh, good. (laughs) (laughs) And then he gets very, I don't know if philosophical is the right word. You feel like Victor Hugo went out into a dark wood to write this bit. (laughs) Because he goes on about, like, the anxiety you feel at night when it's the darkest. And the fanciful realities that blur, um, that you see like floating either in space or in your own mind, something indefiably vague and elusive, like the dreams of sleeping flowers. There are menacing mm. shapes on the horizon, um, pits of darkness, things that have grown frenzied, silent silhouettes that dissipate when you approach. You experience something ghastly, as if your soul were blending with the darkness. Um, it's really sinister and like very interesting to read. <laughs> yeah, really. In- I I I am definitely a city human being. I've grown. I was born and raised in London, and even in the like darkest spots, you can still see the light. But when I went to university, it was near uh, the what's it called uh, Virginia Water, mm. and. Uh, Sometimes there would be like events and stuff, so we would like walk to Virginia Water or nearby, where it's basically these like huge, um, like nature reserves. So um, far away from roads. I mean, it's not that far away. Not as far away as like America can get. But um, for me, <laughs> a Londoner, <laughs> it's like wow, I haven't seen the road for five minutes, so I'm out in the sticks. Um, but yeah, there was one time where I was coming back, and it was like. I don't, I don't think I'd ever realised how dark it could get until then. And mm. I was like, wow, it really is some spook. Like, I can tell why ye oldy people went fucking mad because it's just, <laughs> like, so dark out here. Go off in the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Like, same. I lived mostly, like, either in a big gross city up north or in commuter towns or in London that... You know, I'll be like, oh, all I've ever wanted is to see a shooting star. Victor Hugo. Um, you know how that feels. Uh, or just to see more than a couple of stars. And, like, everyone's always like, oh, you've never seen one. I'm like, I have not lived somewhere that you can see much of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> We're all Javert singing about stars on a ledge. <laughs> I'm literally that person who didn't realize that I needed glasses for a really long time. And I was like in Sicily and it was like really beautiful or so I'm fucking told because like I spent the whole time being like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. It's just like London. Yeah. <laughs> and, now, uh, and I went to Okinawa and like I did have glasses then, but they still weren't the right prescription. So I did see... Uh, a lot of stars, but not as much as I was supposed to. So yeah, it's uh, is this why I you am that Javert? Yeah, this is why you vibe so hard with that Javert gets glasses. <laughs> <thick. laughs> 
It probably is. It's my like projecting really hard on Javert and being like, dude, it's really great. As soon as you get the proper prescription for your glasses, you can see stars and everything. You were your own Jean Valjean making yourself get glasses. <laughs> That's what the Aero Aces need to do, you know. We need to be both the Jean Valjean and the Javert in the relationship. <laughs> Well, unconfirmed whether or not there are only a few stars in the sky or if Cosette too needs glasses. <laughs> but it's really fucking dark, you guys. Um, forests are apocalyptic. It's a sound of agony beneath their monstrous vault. You're like, fuck. <laughs> you, like, glitched out for me for a second. So it was just like, yeah, yeah, monstrous vault. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> And also I read it in a very, like, I'm making fun of him, but actually I really like the line. (laughs) I'll give it to you again. Forests are apocalyptic, and the beating of a tiny soul's wings creates a sound of agony beneath their monstrous vault. I wish that I had been to more forests so I could uh, uh, relate to that. (laughs) I want to go get lost in the forest and be afraid. Stevie, let's go. Let's just go. Let's fucking do it. We'll be recording coming to you next time, live from a forest. And we're both in the bed of night. Both not used to it and scared. <laughs> you can, you'll be able to tell our voices are just like, yeah, it's really cool out here, <laughs> guys. She doesn't have her, her, her host friend to make it okay for her yet. So, because that's just so terrified, she kind of starts disassociating. And then. Mm, mood. Yeah. Well, but then, like, in an amazing technique that Victor Hugo must have come across somewhere, she starts to count aloud up to ten, and then when she finished, she started beginning again, and this gave her gave back to her a true perception of the things around her, and then she starts to think about the coldness in, in her hands from when she was drawing the water. She stands up, she kind of measures her breath so she really like brings herself back out of it which is really amazing victor hugo making his mindful meditation podcast yeah (laughs) here it is um yeah so that calms her down enough from that state that she's able to feel fear again (laughs) so that she can flee because she was kind of in, it wasn't even like a fear by that point. She was like on some other realm of just like the enormity of nature and how dark it is. So now that she's feeling fear again, she's like, okay, right, I've got to get out of here. But this bucket is so big and heavy that <laughs> she'll like shuffle a bit and then she has to stop to like put it down and catch her breath, which she does not want to be doing because it's so terrifying, but she has to rest. Starting and stopping so much. The water's, like, slopping all over her on her, like, little bare legs. So she's freezing in the night with this bucket. Um, with her head bowed like a little old woman. This was happening in the depths of a forest at night in winter, far from all human eyes. She was an eight-year-old child. At that moment, there was no one but God watching this sorry sight. And doubtless her mother, alas, for there are things that make women lying dead in their graves open their eyes. It was like, gosh, I'm glad you're watching over her, Fontaine, but not like this. Yeah, (laughs) not like this. Please, nothing but this. Yeah. She uh, keeps going, though. She's, like, sobbing at this point, but she 
know she has to get back because this ever-present fear of the Tenardier woman that she knows will beat her if she takes too long to get home. Um, like, that word is used, at least in this translation. So exhausted. She's just, as she's walking along, like, oh my god, oh my god, crying out. And then at that moment, her bucket suddenly felt like it weighed nothing. And a hand, which looked enormous to her, had just sealed, seized the handle and lifted it. Towering above her, a huge black figure, which I'm sure is for the shadows, but, like, we're really... I'm still vibing off of last week's, like, Jean Valjean, a person of colour, so I was like, could be! Um, a huge <laughs> black figure was walking beside her in the dark. It was a man. And there's only one man. Uh, who had caught up with her, and she had not heard him coming. He'd taken the handle of the bucket. There is an instinct for every encounter in life. The child was unafraid. I mean, if only God and her mother are watching on, then Jean Valjean is both God and her mother. Ooh, this is true. Motion passed. Like, Victor Hugo does literally say later, one, that that Cosette thought that her mother's spirit possessed Jean Valjean, and two, that... um, Jean Valjean doesn't see himself as either a mother or a father to mm. Cosette. Um, uh, he sees himself as both rather than neither. And we already know that Jean Valjean is God. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that Practice. really is like, um, yeah, the first time that we get uh, uh, Fontaine is mentioned and Jean Valjean takes up the mantle of I like Late it. to the game, but uh, you oh, wow. finally arrived. <laughs> yeah, God, that was the thing you're thinking about, that you're like, woo, jean like, it feels like the, it's quite a long chapter. When that bucket finally gets lifted, and you're like, oh, God, jean Valjean's finally here. <laughs> uh, you're like, God, he put off coming to get her for so long, and mm. we've just had to live in how brutal her life is. That you're like, oh, Jean Valjean, you feel guilt a lot. This, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're gonna feel pretty bad <laughs> realizing. Mm. But was very glad to see him lifting this bucket. She could not keep hobbling around with it. And yeah, and then it's she. On the one hand, you're like, oh, she. She just like knows in her soul that this is a good person and that's why she doesn't feel fear but then you're like she's probably so terrified <laughs> that you'd just be glad to see anyone <laughs> yeah especially somebody with huge yaoi hands <laughs> <laughs> confirmed yaoi hands <laughs> well Victor Hugo's like well anyway let's leave that scene <laughs> which may prove your child's intelligence <laughs> um <laughs> And so, especially after all of those chapters, like, we've split it up over two episodes, but you're like, oh, you kind of almost do really need this, like, so anyway, uh, let's get back on my other brand of Victor Hugo bullshit. (laughs) And it's, if you, you know, as soon as we see there was a man, we're like, Jean Valjean, this is a whole chapter of, like, a man walked a long time. (laughs) This man looked like someone in search of lodging. That man did actually rent a room in that remote neighborhood. We'll find out later. Uh, the gentleman beggar who shall not be named in a yellow coat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, with his completely white hair, but remarkable vigor. Don't worry. About <laughs> it. Um, it's like the whole thing is that it's like there was a man doing this. It, who's to say who he was? <laughs> but uh, I kind of glossed over it. But the just the uh, vague. It's probably Jean Valjean. Uh, <laughs> clothing description. It feels so much like my immortal, the fanfic. <laughs> like, I'm wearing this, this, and this, and it's literally like. So um, he's wearing a frock coat of coarse cloth with yellow ochre, um, black breeches faded grey at the knee, stockings of black worsted, and steady <laughs> shoes of a couple, couple of buckles. <laughs> And I stared at people in the woods because they were all looking at me and uh, my yellow coat, which was actually ochre, but I call it yellow because I'm not a prep. I put my little finger up at them. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get a lot of description of his lips. Hey, hey man, kissable, soft, subtle lips. <laughs> They're actually um kind of got a strange twist that it looks like they're severe but 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 <laughs> was actually humility oh. <laughs> He's such victor hugo's oc in this chapter i love it so much so many people will call my call the twist of my lips um severe but actually um it there i'm actually very humble and um so anyway um, my name is, I mean, I don't have a name because I'm too cool for a name, actually. And I'm actually a criminal on the run, so um, I don't actually use my name anymore. But, um... <laughs> it is big, that energy. Um, and, like, he's found the time to make a, his older cudgel. That was a thing he used to carry on with. <laughs> and it, it, it does go into some description about the little gnarled knots on it. Excellent. Excellent, and I love the way that you read that. One more time for the microphone, really. <laughs> Nailed nuts. <laughs> um, and then, like, in this chapter that already felt a bit like, so anyway, this is going on. We get all this description, and then it's like, so anyway, King Louis used to drive through this town at two o'clock every day. You did not need a clock. You knew it was two o'clock because he was passing through. Um, and then he just, like, gives very in-depth description of the king, but in a, in a very, like, okay, you don't like him, Victor Hugo. Uh, this impotent king liked to ride at full gallop. He stared coldly at the people, who responded likewise. That bigwig bears the government, one inhabitant commented. Uh, but to cut, that, to cut a long story short for you, this, the king drives through town at two o'clock, and everyone knows that. So we know that this man must not be from around here because he looks so surprised to see the king here. And then it's just, like, Jean Valjean's constant luck that, like, because he's the only one in the street because he doesn't realise this is going to happen. He's like, okay, I'll push myself up against the side of the, the wall so I'm not in the way. That He gets clocked by a policeman and... Uh, one of the men on the royal carriage who are like, there's a rather villainous looking man. <laughs> just to follow him around a bit. It's like literally that like, mm, I'm just going to follow this one 
person around the shop. No reason, no, uh, <laughs> no correlation <laughs> reason for that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting as well, like, um, the to think that within, I don't know how many months it's been, I don't think we have, like, a, an actual amount of days, but within, let's say, a couple of months, this same king, like, nearly runs over Jean Valjean, who the police think is, like, yeah, a vagabond or a criminal. And, like, two months ago, this was the same king who was like, hey, I've heard of Monsieur Madeleine. Yeah, he should be the mayor. I'm going to make him the mayor because he's so good. Oh, God, I hadn't even remembered that. Oh, it all comes full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, like, really... For once, Victor Hugo being subtle in his, like, hey, look, the same person can be treated so differently just because Mm. of people's perceptions of humanity. He set up and then he paid off. (laughs) Also interesting, so this is over two pages. The page two is, you know, them clocking Jean Valjean. Well, this man, I apologise, could be anyone. Um, (laughs) And they're like... That's a rather villainous looking man. But on the page before, when he's doing his My Immortal description, he's like, Mm. he's the embodiment of the type that might be called the gentleman beggar, combining extreme poverty with extreme cleanliness, that rare mixture that inspires intelligent hearts with that dual respect felt for the person who is very poor and the person who is very respectable. So you're like, so what do people feel when they see him? And yeah, it's literally that Victor Hugo bullshit of like, ah, the respectable poor, who know their place. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, don't worry, he gives the policeman the slip. And then he's looking for a coach. There aren't any seats in the coach left, but there's the seat next to the coachman. So the man buys a ticket for Lanne. I'm going to go with Lanne. Not Lagney. Cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he buys his ticket to Lene. And um, in true, like, just trying to be a friendly Uber driver fashion, the coachman's trying to start conversations, but the traveler replied only in monosyllables. <laughs> so then the coachman's like, okay, I'll just, like, whistle to myself then. And then before they actually get to Lene, they get to Chalet. <laughs> um, I'm just guessing on the pronunciations of these. Um, Listen, I can't help you one single bit. So, <laughs> um, the ma- the man jumps off, uh, and the highwayman turns to the rest of his the people in his cart in the most unrealistic moment I find, where he's like, <laughs> "That one man there, he's not from these parts. So I don't know him." He looks like he's hard up, and yet he's not careful with money. He pays the fare to Lene and only goes as far as Chalet. It's dark. All the houses are closed up. He doesn't go to the inn. And there's no sign of the house of uh. There's there's no sign of him. The ground must have opened up and swallowed him. And you're like, what? <laughs> maybe I guess maybe he's just a chatty coachman, which I guess was set up by him trying to talk to the man. But I I was just like, I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess he's there to make sure that we really are like, okay, that's what is going on, I guess. That sure is weird. Thanks for pointing it out, I guess. (laughs) I couldn't figure that out myself. Thanks, Coachman. Thanks, Victor Hugo. I mean, thanks, Coachman. (laughs) So the man is scurrying through town, trying not to be seen. At one point, he can see some people coming down the lane. So he jumps into a ditch. And waited for them to go past. And then Victor Hugo's like, 
actually, this precaution was almost unnecessary, because as we have already said, it was very dark December night. <laughs> yeah, like, Jean Valjean, stop being such a fucking dimwit. <laughs> it's literally like, Victor Hugo wrote his character jumping in a ditch and was like, he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> literally like writing Jean Valjean as this like sexy lipped dude and it's like absolute himbo jumping into a ditch I love this stupid sexy bitch because how could he forget that it's dark me Victor Hugo wrote that it was (laughs) Uh, yeah all this to say he's not travelling by the road he doesn't want to be seen Um, so he ends up walking through some of the forest uh, and he's clearly coming across markers that he recognises like he stops at some stones and is like "Uh uh-huh they lead him over to like a birch tree that he's like okay so if I turn around from this one there's a chestnut tree and in that chestnut tree is some zinc and in front of that zinc if I jump on this other bit okay it's not being uh, disturbed I think I know where I am he's got his Mm -hmm. bearing it was this man who had just uncounted <laughs> Cosette uh, as he'd been walking through the forest. He noticed a tiny figure groaning as it went, setting down its burden, picking it up, resuming its progress. Then he went up to the child and silently took the handle of the bucket. So I do like that he didn't even know that it was... I think in my head he knew that it was Cosette in the woods. Because mm. I think I just remember that scene of... I've not watched the movie since we watched it on the podcast years ago. So in my head he just like come... He's, like, in a horse and car, and he, like, grabs Cosette and puts her in there and is like, I'm going to give you a better life, here's your doll. <laughs> no, there is an interim sin- scene. Uh. Okay. So I was like, oh, he's just... I know we know this, but, you know, he's just, like, a nice dude who will help any small child struggling with a bucket in the forest. Yeah, yeah. That does get transferred at least a little bit into the film. It's not like he just scoops <laughs> up a random child and is like, you're mine now. <laughs> I just like I just assumed he had known somehow in his little heart that it was Cosette. Mm, because of God. <laughs> but, well, it's still not confirmed Jean Valjean. It's still this man. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it, yes, this man. <laughs> um, And... I did my job really good because that's where I'm going to we'll be left in the suspense of who is this man? <laughs> One day we will find out who this man is, but today is not that day. <laughs> I just like mostly wanted to end on a chapter that felt easier to be lighthearted through. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. some of the journeys we've all gone on together <laughs> recently. Yeah, because there's like hope for Gazette, the bucket's been picked up. There's a this nice man in stockings with a very humble smile. <laughs> I wonder okay, let's find the let's find what it says in my translation. Stevie, talk about translations. Oh yeah. So I feel like I've several times almost said that we are now using Christine Donahue translation of Les Mis. With introduction by Andrew Davies, um, which <laughs> was yeah kindly able to happen, kindly able to happen, was able to happen because of our kind uh, little Kofi donators. Thank you. So that 
now we are taking that break from my Denny translation. I can't tell how different it feels yet. I guess There's... you mostly got the like Waterloo stuff, so it yeah. wasn't really like the jump run stuff. I would have to have to study the Waterloo segments of this one to really know, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, you're looking for three... I, I have it, I actually underlined it myself last time, uh, well when I read it before, I've underlined every time that Jean Valjean gets um, mentioned, oh it, it also here um, was a big black shape straight and tall, but going by his form, so, uh, slow gait unusual virility, his lips were contracted in a strange crease that looked severe but was actually humble, so pretty similar um mm. So was it actually, wait, let me grab my Denny while we're doing this. And I can get the, the French as well. <laughs> we only look up all the different ways his lips are described. <laughs> Literally, the only time that we bring out all of our copies. <laughs> oh, there's definitely very different uh, chapter titles in the Denny. Uh, so this chapter for me is, which may prove Boulatrelle's intelligence, uh, which is referencing hmm. the man from last time I believe or the time before yeah. that where he was like that's definitely Jean Valjean and he's definitely <laughs> got some treasure whereas in the Denny it's called the man in the yellow coat um, oh mine is also which perhaps proves Boulatrelle's intelligence so it's probably that in the um, French yeah I didn't yeah. realise how much Denny changes those <laughs> just goes off on his own fucking shit yeah interesting yeah i guess this is an interesting one because yeah i found it in um the french again apologies for my pronunciation of this qui peut être prouve l'intelligence de boulatoelle um mm. so yeah uh, this probably proves the intelligence of boulatoelle but it's interesting that denny completely takes that away like um because, because yeah, the like the zinc in the tree and the like the like strange bit of mud that blah blah, blah like like that is taking away some of Hugo's meaning because it's taking away the the reference to Boulatruel. Yeah, this is like focusing more on that he was like, what's most relevant here is the man. Yeah, Jean Valjean. So I've got Denny's here. His upper lip had a curious fold, which looked stern, but was, in oh, fact, God. humble. That's worse. <laughs> you don't like no, curious no. fold? Well, anyway. the most important thing got through every translation, and that's those humble lips. <laughs> those humble, serene lips. <laughs> <laughs> On that note... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, on that note, uh, thanks for listening to <laughs> This Has Been Lemon's. No, this has been Bread and Barricades, a Lamer's podcast produced by me, Nimu Martin, and Julian Yap. I said my name wrong, which is really weird. <laughs> Um, if you like this podcast and you'd like to sponsor us to go out into a woods and record an episode in pitch darkness and hopefully show Stevie uh, a shooting star for the first time in her life, <laughs> we have both a Kofi and a Patreon. Please donate to them uh, if you can. If you'd like to leave a five-star review and give us a nice comment, that would be really great. And if you do, screenshot it and send it to our email, lamespodcast at gmail.com, L-E-S-M-I-S podcast at gmail.com, or to our Twitter at lamespodcast, or to our Tumblr at bradandbarricades.tumblr.com. 
Our music is by our audio director Jade, who you can find on her website at jadewasabi on Twitter or at jadewasabi.bandcamp.com. And yeah, so thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Close you a kiss with my humble lips. And now how to do this really naturally and go into it as if we haven't finished recording. <laughs> For the first time in a while, we also got a comment slash question slash quibble, I guess, <laughs> um, from a person called Kelly, um, who sent us a very nice and uh, interesting email, um, uh, which also included FICREX, which is probably what we're going to talk more about, because I think that is something that we haven't really talked about on main very much. Um, so I wanted to talk about the briefly um, some of the adaptations that uh, Kelly recommended. Some of these I have read and some of these I have bought, even though I said in my reply to this email that uh, I, I personally find reading um, sort of modern adaptations or, or um, uh novelizations of fanfics hard to read i read a lot of fanfic uh so it's definitely not that and i don't know why i find it strange <laughs> to read a, a published version but um because of this email i did go out and buy some so hopefully soon i will have read some um but there is an ongoing comic series on tumblr called dark waters which is a really interesting, if you've ever read a post saying Javert and Jean Valjean fic, um, like any Valvert fic, which is, <laughs> it, it's basically that, but in comic form. And oh, it's, uh, the one you sent, you sent me yeah. to look at some of the panels. Yeah. Very it's, it's, <laughs> it's very well drawn. It's um, quite dark and it has, it's pretty, um, it's got some pretty serious imagery, so content warning for uh, explicit uh, images of Javert's suicide attempt. But yeah, if, if you like Jean Valjean and Javert and you want to read a comic instead of reading a fanfic, I would recommend it. And then there are a couple of books, um, Barricades, The Journey of Javert, which I think I've talked about before, but it's... Um, it's basically a, a version of what this author imagines Javert's childhood to be like. There is a book called Virago by Ellie Velsen, um, which uh, is kind of Andras as... It, it isn't kind of. It is about mm-hmm. Andras as a woman who disguises herself as a man. Um, and apparently it goes into issues of gender and class privilege and intimacy. And it's really well researched because... Um, Ellie Valsin is a historian. There is an ongoing series called System Divine, um, which has two books called Sky Without Stars and Between Burning Worlds. And it's imagining Les Mis from Eponine's perspective um, with a sci-fi backdrop, which mm. is pretty cool. Kelly compares it to, to Treasure Planet or to Gunkutsuo. Kelly also sent us um, a fanfic that I didn't want to read, but <laughs> I sent intrepid researcher Stevie to do it for me. Um, yeah, 
I was between like at first I was like whoa six over a hundred thousand words are too long but I read so fast and when I'm between fandoms I need something that I was like okay Nemo I will read this fic and it's not going to be for everyone because it is a Harry Potter world AU but it was a really good fic I had a really good time um (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of very purple prose Mm. and for like such a long fic it like had really amazing imagery it was like it was so well written like I really love a super high polished fic that it didn't like rely on it like wasn't very purple but was still beautiful I don't know if that makes sense but like (laughs) it was like it was so well written that it was a joy to read Mm. Um. So even it's, it's, oh, sorry, you go. I was just going to say it's called Per Adua oh, Astra <laughs> by the life of M, who is basically one of the biggest names in the Lamers fandom. Um, okay. is very much known to be uh is, is a prolific writer in the Lamers fandom, yeah. basically. Okay, um, so like I'm sure if you're already in the fandom, probably know of them. So if this, if a Harry Potter AU is not your bag, that they'll have other work that will be in this style that I loved so much, but not Harry Potter. Yeah, they <laughs> definitely have ones that aren't uh, like 200k as well. Yeah, <laughs> so. okay, so this is something everyone else knows, but I was just like, wow, it was it was worth, like, I. so it's like part of a larger series. I only mm. did part one of the To The Stars series, this this. Uh, this one but yeah I don't want I guess I don't want to spoiler it for people who will read it but for someone who usually chooses to read fix and a 40k unless I'm really desperate I got through it so quickly I liked it (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that you liked it (laughs) yeah it was like a constant like okay, they've made this really bad decision, but, like, they've sorted it out, they've sorted it out, and then they make a worse decision. I'm like, oh, my God. And they're on track, they're on track, they're on track. And then they make a worse decision. You're like, oh, my God. I loved actually getting the updates from you because it very much was the experience of reading, uh, uh, especially a Valverthic, where it's like, oh, have they even, like, touched yet? <laughs> like, not even romantically, but, like, have they, like, had fingers brushing yet? Like, no? no. And you're, like, 100k in? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I really liked how tasteful pan up to the window any sex scenes were. Like, I I don't know how our listeners... Well, I don't know how well you know us, listeners, but, like, I will read any filth. But some... <laughs> When it's in like this larger fic, that it would have almost maybe have felt out of place. So like getting to the intimate scenes and they were just like so tasteful, so well written, exactly how I like to see it in this kind of fic. Uh, it was very chef's kiss. I mean, that's a pretty glowing review if you ask me. <laughs> Um, the final thing that Kelly uh, recommended to us which isn't out yet but I would recommend anyone who has Steam um, there is a game coming out called Inspector Javert and the Oath (laughs) of Blood and uh, it's a post-sane fix-it AU kind of thing uh, where you play as Javert walking around the city of France, city of Paris not France, fuck me Um, (laughs) And, um, yeah, it 
it looks really interesting from the trailer and you can well, I'll link to the trailer mm. and stuff but yeah if you have steam um you can I don't know what it's called but you can like pre order it yeah I guess or like pre favorite it kind of thing oh, okay um so yeah everyone should go and do that because uh it looks really pretty as well like it's yeah it's it looks good can we play so, it together when it comes out absolutely that'll be a special I, yeah, I don't know whether there is a two-player, but yeah, let's live stream playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assumed it would just be me over your shoulder if we're allowed to see each other, or just, like, screen sharing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can do that, get good at the game, and then Steam, uh, Steam run it, speed run it, because <laughs> that's the kind of gamers that we are. <laughs> um yeah, so if you have any fanfic recommendations or if you are making a game, I guess, <laughs> um, please do send them to us. We promise we're not going to read all of the things that you send us because um, we don't have that kind of time, thankfully, but also sadly. Um, but if you have anything that you think that you think that we will like, please do send us a recommendation. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Cool. Great. How long was that? I wasn't looking. 11 minutes. Great.